talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is on the board. Willerskin inviting the guests. In the newsroom, Diana Weeks and Dave Woodard. One more day until the provincial election. Then it's back to moving forward. Here's Scott Thompson! It is Hamilton today. It is the beginning of Pride Month. Happy Pride. Uh, Celebrate your individuality uh, through the whole month of June. And uh, happy Pride to anybody and those that want to discover more. uh, Open up your eyes and ears and uh, get to know your neighbors. Uh, tons of, well, you know what? There's not a lot going on, but we're waiting for stuff. And, you know, I haven't talked about this because, frankly, it's like watching a train wreck. It's like a slow motion train wreck. It's like watching, it's like, a, it's like hammerhead trivia. Uh, you know, uh, what was it, 1857? The Desjardins Canal train disaster. Over it goes. That's what this is like watching in slow motion. The Depp Heard uh, verdict has been reached, and uh, they were all coming in, and then there was some sort of technicality, and the jury was uh, uh, escorted back out again. So there's been a delay in that, you Hollywood people that are waiting, Hollywood fans of, uh, of uh, Depp and Heard that are waiting for this, uh, this verdict. But again, oh, I, I just, I had a hard, I remember watching a bit of it at the beginning, and I'm thinking, this is like watching, it's like going into divorce court and watching some of the hell that goes on in there. And, you know, and one of the reasons that they try to make deals outside of court so it doesn't get to this point. Uh, but anyway, uh, those that are watching, uh, the Depp heard verdict. Apparently it has been reached, although uh, for some sort of reason on a technicality, they've been escorted back out and uh, there's been a little delay there. So uh, there you go. All right. Uh, what else we got going on? Election day tomorrow. Election day tomorrow. Uh, fascinating that uh, this campaign has come and gone so quickly. We've talked about this uh, at length and, and really the, the discussion is, it seems to be, and you never know what polls, you never know what polls, but but it seems to be the discussion is um, who is going to finish in second place. And it was interesting because I was watching, uh, I was, I was watching, uh, I'll say CTV yesterday and, uh, and watching one of the reputable hosts talk to Nick Nanos, who we've had on the show many times. And we're trying to get him on today to talk about this, but unfortunately he's in, he's in flight. He's in, in route to somewhere. And, uh, and, and basically what, what this person said was, you know, this has really been an elect cause it's been very dull and it's been very dull because there's not been much opposition. Um, you know, the more different opinions you have, the more, uh, uh, you know, f- fiery, I guess, the election can- campaign can be. Uh, but again, this reporter alluded to the, you know, it's been more about uh, campaign management. Uh, and I'm paraphrasing here, campaign management and in, 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 in the running of the campaign than it has been about the actual issues uh, itself, which, you know, I, I, I really strongly disagree with. I think the issues are very, very much in the forefront and the issues, however, are all economic. And most of the time, uh, those parties that tend to lean to the left aren't interested in economic issues. It's the parties that lean to the right. And we all know post-pandemic, the major issues have been cost of living 
issues. They've been economic issues, which normally the left does not have, um, uh, uh, they're not really aggressive on. So the issues are housing, the high price of food, cost of living, energy inflation, uh, interest rates, uh, need for infrastructure. That's what the issues are, but the opposition really doesn't have anything on those. And as I keep pointing out over and over and over again, have pretty much conceded to the progressive conservatives simply because they all agree now, even the Greens, that we need to build 1.5 million homes in the next 10 years because we haven't been doing that for the last 5, 10, 20, 25 years. So, uh, you know, is there issues? Yes, there's issues, but they're not necessarily social issues like climate change, uh, whatever. Uh, not that that is not important. It's extremely important. Uh, but what differs is how we get there. But what is very, very, very common is the pinch that we're all feeling. And the major issues are much, 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 much more different than they were in past elections because of where we are in a post-COVID-19 world. And again, the issues, there's lots there. It's just the left really doesn't have a comeback for them because it involves housing, which all four political parties from the Greens, uh, Liberals, NDP, NPCs are all focused on the same thing. Uh, also, the high price of food, the high cost of energy. You see that every time you drive past a gas station or you fill up, you go into the grocery store. Those are things that parties on the left normally do not talk about. And with where we are, those are the realities in our world uh, post-global pandemic. And I really think what's happening is the NDP and the Greens uh, and the Liberals are all fighting the exact same uh, campaign that they did last election and the election before that and the election before that. And we're in a completely different world right now where the rubber has hit the road, the poop has hit the fan, and people want results, not just a lot of chatter. And again, when you see all four political parties agreeing in regard to housing, perhaps different ways of getting there, but certainly agreeing, you have to ask, well, how the heck did we get to here in the first place if you're all agreeing on this now? So again, I think there's plenty of issues. They're just all economic-based and less social-based, as we've seen in past elections. We'll talk about that coming up a little later on in the show as well. Bringing it back closer to home to the hammer, and man, it's uh, what an amazing uh, write-up there was in the spec today in regard to uh, business development, residential development in Hamilton. We always talk about uh, building permits. I remember when it was a big deal when they were over a billion dollars, and then two. Uh, and and the amount of, of residential that is being added to the downtown core is just incredible uh, compared to where we were, you know, 10, 15 years ago. Uh, that being said, the Hamilton Business Rally begins today. It is a month-long volunteer-led uh, designed to support uh, Hamilton businesses and asking people to complete a series of 12 acts. The goal is to, to promote the small businesses of Hamilton. To talk more about all of this, Krista Boyer is with us, proud Hamiltonian, commercial realtor Blair Blanchard Stapleton and is with us now. Krista, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Uh, yes, I'm doing great. And thank you, Scott, for having me on. So tell us about this. What is the Hamilton Business Rally? What is the objective here? So the objective is to support our local businesses. I mean, there's no doubt in the last two years, our local businesses have really struggled 
throughout the COVID pandemic. Um, and it was uh, two years ago where I came up with the initial idea of the rally, looking for a way, as did so many others, of, you know, how can I support my community, my local businesses, et cetera, throughout that time period. Uh, so, so that, in essence, is the goal. And here we are finally today launched. So how does this work? So it is primarily a social media campaign. So there's two avenues where you can participate. Um, the first is going on the website. That's a great place to get all the information in regards to the rules and how to participate. But the primary area for participation will be on our Instagram. So if you go to Hamilton underscore business underscore rally, follow along, follow us, follow along. Every day we're going to release one of 12 acts. And each act is designed to support a local business. So an example would be, and I'm giving one away now, but it will it'll be a while before it's released, is you know, shop local for a gift. Mm. Uh, and these acts are meant to you know, get out or get onto social media and do something to support that local business. Once you complete that act, you self-report that you've completed it on Instagram. And every time you complete an act, you get a ballot, and then you're entered into prize giveaways. And we're doing... Uh, weekly, monthly prize giveaways in the value of $25, 50 and $100. And then our lucky winners get to choose from the participating businesses as to where they want to get their gift card from. So again, trying to give it right back to the businesses. What a great idea. So basically, uh, you follow along and then take advantage of these incentive packages. Exactly, exactly. And I, I promise you, it's fun when I designed this. You know, I wanted to make something... Um, that, yes, it supports local businesses, but, you know, you're able to enjoy yourself as you do it. So where did this idea come from? It, it really was born out of COVID. When COVID hit, you know, I, I mm. like so many others, like I was struggling to think of, you know, how do, um, how do I support the businesses? And it was actually part of a larger program I had developed, which we weren't able to launch. There was just too many challenges with COVID at the time. So I took this element of it out of that program and then started fine-tuning this so that um, I can move forward on the local business aspect. It's amazing, and we remember this, because we were, uh, we were uh, at this time, we'd do a small business feature every day. Uh, it started with uh, hospitality and then just moved to all kinds of different businesses, and it was fascinating to see, and you ho- heard all kinds of stories, those that, that failed, those that succeeded, and, and literally businesses that started up during the pandemic and, and recreated themselves in a situation which had not even been there before. And what came out of that, obviously, was the whole shop local movement. Um, how do you keep that attitude, that momentum going? Uh, well, you know, I, I, I'm hoping that part of this will encourage people, like as they get out, they're discovering businesses they weren't even aware existed, you know, and then finding them, you know, they just immediately a loyalty is, is created where, well, you know, I didn't know this coffee shop was there. I'm going to start frequenting this place and et cetera and et cetera. And, you know, and further to that, it's a choice, right? You know, our local businesses are so imperative for our local economy. And it starts with us making a choice by participating locally, by supporting our local businesses. Now, how we get there, you know, I think this is one way of getting there, but there's so many, so many ways um, that we can get there.
And, you know, a lot of people, uh, the first thing they think about is price. But uh, mm-hmm. another, and obviously local businesses, it's harder for them to compete with larger outlets that have just more volume and such. But I think what people have realized, too, is that local businesses will specialize in order and do things specifically for them. So yeah. if you're looking for something, whatever it is, and you and you can't find it or whatever, and if the local merchant knows that there's a demand for it or there's somebody that wants it, they'll they'll be the liaison and put you in touch with that or, or get that for you. And I think more people are realizing that now. Yeah. And you know what? Touching on price, though, I think sometimes people don't realize that actually local businesses can provide better pricing mm-hmm. for their product. We just have this assumption that if I go to the big box store, that they're going to be go. more competitive pricing. And even when we were putting together the rally, when we we're looking at print costs, I did a comparative analysis just to see. And I was looking at one of the big box stores for printing and instead chose um, a, a local printer in the International Village. Hmm. They, the savings were into the hundreds of dollars. There you go. There's a perception change right there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if people want to find out more, HamiltonBusinessRally.com? Yes, HamiltonBusinessRally.com. And Instagram is Hamilton underscore business underscore rally. All right, the Hamilton Business Rally begins today yes. and consider it complete, or rather, it's a series of 12 acts. And to find out more, HamiltonBusinessRally.com. Krista Boyer with us. Krista, thanks for the time. Good luck with this. Yes, thank you, Scott, and I hope you'll play along with us. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Frankly, they need a little bit of luck. They, they need things like commodity prices and supply chains um, to, to, to help a bit here. Um, you know, the absolute worst thing to happen right now would be for oil prices and grain prices to take another big step up and for supply chains to remain snarled. Um, I, I think we're, we're right out at the knife's edge now. BMO Chief Economist Doug Porter talking about the Bank of Canada rate uh, going up to uh, 50 basis points to 1.5% uh, with the Bank of Canada rate to talk more about all of this and what it means for you and me and uh, our recovery out of a global pandemic moving forward. Ian Lee with us, Associate Professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. He is with us now. Ian, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Uh, thanks, Scott. Doing very well. Your thoughts on the this hike, uh, another 50 basis points, another uh, uh, now taking it up to a, a percentage, uh, 1.5%. Is it time to swallow the tough medicine? Is this Was this too big a hike? Was it just right? It's a year overdue. Hmm. Uh, well, I have been, uh, and others, I'm not trying to take credit here, uh, since April the budget of April 21, all the uh, negative numbers from COVID had been recovered. All the job, almost all the job losses, April, May, June, around there, had been recovered. GDP was roaring along at five, six percent. There was no recession. You stimulate the economy, classic economic theory and practice in countries, Canada, US, UK, Germany, etc. You stimulate the economy when the economy is in the tank. Stimulate means you print money by deficit financing. I have no problem with that when the economy is in the tank and GDP is collapsing and unemployment is skyrocketing. That's the classic response. You slash interest rates to the bone and that provides monetary stimulus to the economy. Since April 21, 
we have been pouring gasoline, high octane gasoline onto the inflation fire in Canada. No, the government didn't cause the inflation. I understand that. We all understand that. It was caused by the lockdowns, which blew up the supply chains and then Russia invaded Ukraine for sure. But no one listening should assume that because the inflation came from into Canada from outside, therefore there is, quote, nothing we can do. If that's the case, let's get rid of the Bank of Canada. Well, that's silly. That's preposterous. Every central country has a central bank because there are things you can do. And remember, the Central Bank of Canada is not worried about inflation in Russia. It's not worried about inflation in Germany or in Australia. It's worried about inflation here in Canada. That's its mandate. And the economy is rip-roaring red hot. And we've been stimulating it, making it worse. We didn't cause it, but we've certainly made it worse. Many and have so said... Sorry, go ahead, Ian. Go ahead. And so today, I have been critical. I'm not suggesting firing the Bank of Canada Governor Tiff Backlund's a highly intelligent, highly educated individual, and um, he should have moved quicker. Other central banks around the world should have moved quicker. However, today, his his comments. In fact, for the last 30 days or so, 60 days, he's recognized the mistake. He's admitted they made mistakes. He's saying, we're going to fix it. We're going to act aggressively. So my comment, my my uh, my analysis today is it's long overdue, but very welcome. It had to be done. The interest rate today, people may be crying about it. It's still below the neutral rate. We're still stimulating the economy. The neutral rate is between 2 and 3%, and we're at 1.5. So they're putting some stimulus, monetary stimulus still into the economy, as is the fiscal side with uh, ongoing deficits. Many have said that uh, they should have jumped the gun on this a little sooner, but is hindsight 2020 here, or did we see this coming? And and is what what role does the politics of the day play in this, or does it at all? Um, uh, let me deal with the first part first. <laughs> um, it, 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 there were lots of people saying a year ago. I mean, David Dodge was saying this. I was saying this. Um, Don Drummond was saying this, and and for anybody who says, boy, you think you're really smart and clever. No, no, no. <laughs> All you have to do is look at the big numbers. Inflation was starting to take off a year ago. The economy was red hot, growing at, at rates we hadn't seen before COVID. It was growing at five and six percent. Unemployment had been recovered and was going, and labor shortages were emerging. All the data, all the evidence was there. It was as clear as a bell. And central banks, including our own and the U.S., said, no, 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 inflation, it's just transitory. It's temporary. And I lived through the 70s. I was in the Bank of Montreal as a mortgage manager, and I heard those same excuses. And they kicked the problem down the road. And as I tell my students, and I've been saying for years to friends of mine, you kick a problem down the road, it does not make the problem go away. It just gets bigger. I postponed my knee replacement surgery for years thinking, hey, my knee will recover and get better. No, it didn't. <laughs> it got worse. It just got worse and worse and worse. And then I had to have a major surgery. Kicking problems down the road does not solve problems. So finally, let's give credit today. He recognizes they should have gone earlier. They didn't. Now he's fixing it. And that's good. So congratulations to the Bank of Canada today. We need another rate increase because there's still too much stimulus being poured onto the raging inflation fire. What is the fallout of all of this? 
the um listen I, I, as i keep saying to you I'm a, i was a mortgage manager i lent millions and millions of dollars in residential mortgages throughout the 70s i was there when rates hit 20 percent. i've actually had people writing me emails saying don't you understand that raising interest rates only makes everything more expensive well let me say to, to people who think that i was there i'm not quoting you theory i was at the bank and as they raised those interest rates guess what happened i had fewer and fewer customers walking in the front door who the hell is going to borrow at 12 percent or at 14 or 16 you can say well it's not there when rates go up people who buy homes are very very sensitive to interest rates the way i like to put it home ownership and interest rates are like electricity and water do not draw drop a live electrical current into a bucket of water unless you want to get electrocuted okay water and, and electricity don't mix and and meaning they're opposed to each other interest rates are the same with real estate this is going to cool the market put it up some more it's going to cool it some more keep putting it up it's going to keep cooling it and we will bring inflation down what they're trying to do and and it's very difficult i realize that they're trying to engineer a soft landing cool down the entry of the inflation cool down the gdp which is red hot but don't tip the economy into recession that's called a hard landing that's what we did in 1980 and we had a rip-roaring recession the worst since the great depression of the 30s now before anyone says well that's just terrible horrible awful we also got rid of 14 percent inflation let me repeat that we killed and destroyed inflation in 1980 it went from 14 down to essentially zero so nobody can say it didn't work now we can debate well was that a good way to do it i mean causing lots of people mm. to lose their jobs of course not mm. i'm not advocating that but i'm saying we can't do nothing because if we do the inflation will keep on going up just like they did in the 70s when they kept kicking the problem down the road it went from four to six to seven to eight and they said oh it's gonna it's gonna fix itself and it, they kept making up excuses and then finally when it hit 14 percent the lights went on in ottawa and other governments and said you know we've got a serious crisis here we got to deal with it finally so they belatedly five years later dealt with it fortunately they're responding much more quickly this time so that's why this is not the 1970s and 80s Macklem understands the crisis. It took him a year, not five years. So let's give him credit. He responded much more quickly than they did in the late seventies, early eighties. So I, I don't, I'm not suggesting we're going to see interest rates of ten or twelve or fourteen percent. I do think they're going to go higher. I think the central bank rate will be three percent by the end of this year. And remember, I want to remind your listeners that's the Bank of Canada rate. That's the minimum rate. Yeah. All rates are above that. So if you've got a central bank prime rate of three, you're going to see mortgages, uh, mortgage rates well into the fives. And that's going to cool down real estate. Ian Lee with us, Associate Professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University, talking about the Bank of Canada increasing its rate today to 1.5%. Ian, as always, thank you for the time. Be well. My pleasure, Scott. Thank you. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML.
All right, so we, we know where we are with uh, COVID-19. Remember we used to keep track of all of how many days it was? We don't even do that anymore. Isn't that nice? Uh, but I can tell you that today, 722 were in hospital with COVID. Uh, 60% of them were brought in for other reasons and just tested positive. 127 in the ICU. So obviously things are uh, moving in the right direction as we uh, head into the summer of 2022. And a lot of people excited about that. A lot of people traveling. All you have to do is look up in the sky and see lots of planes flying around where at one time the only thing you would see was a FedEx plane uh, perhaps and we're obviously hearing about the long lineups at Toronto Airport and the delays caused by passengers that seem to be on guard uh, by passengers waiting to get through and, and embark, disembark and such. And it really uh, has continued uh, after the travel restrictions and such have been lifted. Now, COVID-19 border restrictions, this involving incoming travelers and your vaccination and uh, the Canada Arrive app and such uh, have been extended to the end of the month uh this happening obviously as we're hearing of these long lines let's bring in kaylee a line editor and a journalist she is with us now kaylee thanks for the time i hope you're well yeah thank you so much for having me so are you know we've certainly been hearing about the travel delays and such and a lot of that is you know from what we've been hearing was due to airline industries which were virtually shut down uh for a while and then brought back up to speed as as um, conditions warranted and such and just being short staffed how much of the delay that we're seeing uh, it has to do with the extra precautions and protocol and screening people for vaccination and such you know what? It's actually not the vaccinations or um, screening because a lot of that is done through the airline even before you arrive mm-hmm. at the airport. When you check in, you're uploading your documents. It has to do with security and kind of that secondary screening. So you have a lot of travelers who potentially haven't traveled in a long time, aren't as refreshed, aren't kind of like thinking of the baggage restrictions, aren't packing in the way that they might have a few years ago. And they're bringing too many liquids. They're not having their electronics easily accessible and all those little things that will get you flagged for just, you know, that quick secondary screening. But when that happens to multiple passengers, it really does kind of delay the line and make it take a lot longer than it usually would. Uh, we've heard that from the uh, the minister in regard to, to travel, that people just aren't as sharp as at this as they once were. Um, maybe that jives for the first week. But, I mean, after that, like you said, if anything, we all know we have to get our ducks in a row as far as vaccination. I mean, we've been doing this for, for an awfully long time now. So, it, it, you know, I mean, can that really, it, are we really blaming it on the lack of, of just the, the customer not being uh, up to speed yet? Yeah, I was at the airport twice in May, and I definitely noticed it. It was everything from people bringing too many liquids, too large liquids. You know, I saw people with full-size shampoos, and I'm thinking, I don't even remember a time we could travel with those. Or not understanding that even if your liquids are under 100 milliliters, you're only allowed one liter, and it has to be in a proper bag for that, too. So just it's that packing organization skill that we've all kind of forgotten about, but that gets flagged and takes a little bit longer. I know you also mentioned on the way back there has been also delays um, because we need to download the Arrive Can app. So if you're not a frequent flyer, you might not have it on your mobile device. You need to fill that out ideally before you even board your plane to return back home and have that all ready to go. And then once you do, it really doesn't take too long. I filled it out for myself and my niece who I was traveling with and it probably took maybe six minutes total. uh, And that was me trying to find her vaccine information that I didn't have readily available. But 
once you have it done, you have a QR code and you can breeze through security a lot faster. But it's just all these extra new steps that the travelers aren't potentially used to, you know, and it's getting used to that, but also just being ready as a traveler. So it really boils down to just being as organ- like the most organized you can be to see through security and to also, you know, have everything ready for what they ask for. Is there less staff or more staff needed? You know, there could be a, an, a, um, an issue with staffing, but when I was at the airport, all the gates were open. Um, they were quite well staffed. You know, they even had the priority security lanes open too. Um, you know, could it be an issue with newer staffs? Um, that could be it. Could be an issue in just kind of different protocols with the staff. But I think it's just, you know, as a traveler, all we can kind of control is that our bags packed as best as possible and we have everything we need on hand. So, and correct me if I'm wrong, Kaylee, but you seem to be blaming the passenger for this. Uh, I'm not, I guess I am kind of blaming the passenger. I'm saying, though, as a passenger, you know, we can figure yeah, out... Yeah, you got to be ready. Yeah, you've got to be ready. You've got to be ready. But but what's the reasoning for the delay? Is it short-staffed? Is it too much protocol? Is it passengers not being ready? Um, because, you know, you got to think after... Everything. Sorry, go ahead. It's a perfect storm of, I think, all of those at one time causing yeah. delays. So best advice for the traveler is be prepared. Yeah. You know, I have my vaccine certificates on my mobile so I can upload on the app, but I also have a copy printed off in case I need to show it to customs officials. You know, I have my, I've downloaded the apps with the airlines I fly in. I keep everything on hand. You know, I pack my um, carry-on. I always make sure that all my liquids are at the top of my bag so if they need to pull them out, they can access them quickly versus having them in, let's say, in a hard shell suitcase where it's a little bit longer to open it up and find through and then everything falls out. It's just those little things that are a little cumbersome to think about before you travel, but make the world of difference when you're speeding through security and they're asking you to pull out your laptop and pull out this and you just have to get it all out really, really quickly and it can be very overwhelming. Should these border restrictions, in your opinion, have been extended or is it time? Um, in terms of like the pre-departure kind of... Uh, yeah, the, the, the restrictions that have been extended to the end of June, yeah. Yeah, you know, I think it's about time that those kind of went away. I think for travelers, we are doing the best we can to be as safe as possible. Um, but I know with the U.S. government, it's like a bigger question because it has to deal with Canada and Mexico at the same time. And I think they're just trying to weigh their options. But at the end of the day, we want to make travel more accessible. We have a lot of cross-border, whether it comes to shopping, work, family, you know, vacations we want to take. And our relationship with the U.S. is very symbiotic. So I'm sure we'd all love to get there a little bit easier. Mm. Kaylee Aline with us, journalist talking about COVID-19 border restrictions extended to the end of June and what you need to be prepared for when you travel. Kaylee, thanks for the time. Be well. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Take care. Have you tried to buy a car uh, at all during this global pandemic? Uh, because it has become very difficult. If, even if you drive around the city and you look at car lots, uh, many of them uh, are have vacant spots. They uh, vacant spots. They're not filled. They're not uh, even close to getting the stock in uh, that they could normally sell. So that has slowed uh, everything down as a, re- a result of the uh, s- uh, slow supply chain, and that, of course, uh, you know, low supply, high demand is increasing prices, even used vehicles. And a lot of people are saying, you know what, I can get for my car now. It's ten years old, but you still gotta buy a new one after that, or unless you know you're at that point where you're giving up driving let's bring in david booth senior writer post media driving.ca he is with us now david thanks for the time i hope you're well 
I'm very well. Uh, I'm uh, on the other side of the planet. I'm in um, Italy right now, where the weather is a little bit better. And um, um, it's on uh, 10, 1030 actually out here. What a great place to drive, whether you're renting one of those little Fiat things or going around on a Vespa. My goodness, uh, that's an experience um, right there. Both of those. Um, <laughs> yeah. All right. So let's talk about buying a car. We've heard this during the global pandemic. If you're looking for a car right now, if your beast has died, how difficult is it to find or buy a car right now? Well, uh, I tell you, uh, for, uh, for the past year, um, for the next little while, I'm not sure how long it'll last. Let's just say it's a car dealer's paradise. Um, you know, I mean, really, um, you know, they could, if you want to bargain with them, they can just send you packing because they've got two or three customers behind, uh, behind you on a lineup that are willing to just walk in and buy whatever they've got at whatever price you're offering it at. Um, and what about what about stock? Is there anything there for them? What do you ha what is the wait time like for the average vehicle? Well, I, I put it this way: if you were uh, looking for a Toyota Rav4 Prime plug-in hybrid in Ontario right now, um, I think you'd want to be putting a deposit down now for a 2024 model. So uh, you were talking about how it's a paradise for the dealers because there's no dealing involved. You go in and you pay the price and, and you get in line. Uh, are dealers moving anything because they can't bring it in? Or are people just still throwing down money and deposits on vehicles that aren't there? I mean, is the dealer actually making money uh, if they can't supply the product? Well, I, 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 right in the first little bit of this year, um, the balance tipped against making more more money. But last year, um, I, I don't know the exact numbers, but let's say they were the ideal 8% um, um, low in supply compared to the demand. Um, the, even though they sold fewer cars, the premium and the lack of dealing meant that their per car profit was sufficient enough to actually make mm. them overall more profitable. Now, that's probably going to take uh, a nosedive uh, this year, at least in the first quarter or first half, because there's uh, the, the number of cars that are available isn't in that sweet spot where it's enough to make your uh, to make your volume worthwhile but it's also low enough that you're getting the, the top profit right now uh, the, there's too few cars to sell for for sure they'd all like to have more uh are the high prices of gas fuel that we're seeing uh changing habits in any way well, yes. I mean, you're seeing a little more action in the um, in the battery powered um, um, market, the BEVs, the battery powered electric vehicles, and also the PHEVs. That said, you know, Canadians complain about gas mileage. Um, they don't buy fuel uh, uh, as a whole um, a fuel economy. Uh, you know, uh, uh, Ford is not having any trouble selling F one fifties. And, you know, uh, and, and General Motors and the like, you know, at, at Dodge with their Rams, um, they, they, they're selling every high-priced, overstuffed Ram and Silverado they can mm. get their hands on. So, yes, it's made something of a difference. 
whether it's um, uh, as as cut and dried and and pop, uh, possibly as um, as apple, you know, uh, uh, how would I say it? Uh, um, paradigm changing as people are hoping it is, so that it promotes electric vehicles. I- I'm less sure. Um, we also found out this week that uh, higher prices are not pushing people towards transit like many thought that they would, especially post-pandemic. Do we have to? Is Canada still in love with a car? Well, I'd say it's more in love with the car. Like uh, you know, the, there's been a lot of conjecture uh, conjecture on what is happening right now. Nobody is can be a hundred percent sure about most things. So you know, will gasoline lead to more uh, plug-ins? We think so. I think so. Certainly, uh, will it be a dramatic shift? I'm I'm less sure. But you know, we're not. It's not cut and dried. The only thing that is cut and dried about what the results of the pandemic were is that ride sh- uh, sharing, not ride hailing by Uber, though that's down too. But ride sharing is dead as doornails. That's done like dinner. Mm-hmm. I mean, the number one. Um, growth audience that dealers saw even in the worst of the pandemic when you know sales were in the toilet was uh, millennials and the like moving from say Toronto to Hamilton and needing a car because they were not taking public transport ever again. Uh, I've seen numbers from the states um, that say like uh, you know um, car mileage is down about two or three percent right now compared to the peak in 219 uh and rail is down a modest amount as well but that ride sharing is way down just mm. in, in the toilet i mean it, David- that's not coming back that's not coming the, the concept that you know the cars to go and stuff like that uh, it may come back sometime maybe in my lifetime but it won't be in the next five years David Booth is with us, senior writer, Post Media, Driving.ca, talking about how hip, uh, difficult it is to buy a car right now. David, thanks for the time. Enjoy Italy. Thank you very much. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. We certainly know uh, about uh, the opioid crisis and, uh, and so many issues around drug addiction and such, especially during a global pandemic when many of us were isolated and alone and locked down. In uh, a major development coming out of uh, the West Coast, and we know BC certainly uh, the epicenter of all of this and, and have been dealing with this issue for a very, very long time. Well, the federal government has now announced that starting next year, uh, BC will be the first province in Canada to decriminalize possession of small amounts of illicit drugs for personal use. BC's Minister of Health and Addiction said the stigma and secrecy about substance use kills, uh, quote, shame and fear. Uh, keep people from a, from accessing the care that they need and fear of being criminalized uh, has led many people to hide their addiction and drug use alone and using alone can mean dying alone. Uh, what does this mean moving forward? Let's bring in Tim McClement, uh, executive director of the AIDS Network and is with us now. Tim, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I'm well. Thank you, Scott. And you? Uh, we certainly know. Uh, thank you so much. Well, uh, we remember, we certainly know that uh, the, the, there's these crises that are going on all across the country. B.C. certainly uh, seems to be uh, an epicenter. How significant is this announcement that they will be uh, allowed to decriminalize small amounts of uh, illicit drugs? Uh, I think 
we you know, we think it's a it is a significant announcement. Um, it's really what uh, many organizations uh, uh, across the country have been calling for 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 some time, but especially in the last year or two during the um, uh, pandemic and then the increasing uh, deaths uh, due to overdose from opioids. So this is really quite quite timely, and I think we'll probably set a precedent for um, other jurisdictions. Uh, how much did the pandemic play a role in this? Do you think? I think a big, a large role because it just uh, compounded the effects of of uh, people who who might be using in isolation and and alone, and that's where the majority of the overdoses take place is when people are alone. And uh, obviously, uh, you know, this is a a controversial issue. Some say this is only uh, adding to the problem. Others say that it is a solution. How do you balance this? How do you find a starting point? Well, it's a, it's a good point. And, you know, there's a number of ways uh, to do that, um, you know, in terms of a starting point when you just kind of begin this. Um, we won't know, of course, um, we, we know what, what has happened across other communities and in, in other nations where we've seen uh, things like reduced uh, drug-related deaths, reduced transmission of HIV and hepatitis C, lower drug use among youth, you know, more increased access to treatment, um, even better relations with law enforcement, and then reduced criminal justice overcrowding and costs related to that. But a way to sort of um, kind of ease it in, I suppose, would be, you know, looking at also, which is another thing we've been calling for, and that has been happening more, is the access to safer supplies um, programs. So that is a way of um, um, prescribing pharmaceutical grade substances such as opioids and stimulants to individuals who are at risk of overdose um, um, so that they can have a supply that's not going to kill them, basically, and reduce mm. that to reduce that risk. Uh, some say you give something like this to someone, you're only making the problem worse. Yet you've got stats, and we've heard them uh, many times, that deaths are down, that usage is down. Why does that happen? Why is this a solution? Uh, I think it because of what what has been said by the, uh, the I think it was the minister you quoted in the beginning um, is that the people are are le- more likely to access treatment programs um, both for safer supply and for treatment of their addictions um, when they know that they're not going to be uh, criminalized for possession. Is this management? Uh, is this a management of a problem rather than denying it or shoving it to a back burner? I think it is a management, and um, it's also rooted in uh, moving the whole issue into a, more of a healthcare issue as opposed to a criminal issue. You talked about other jurisdictions possibly jumping on board. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Who is likely to do it? What about other parts of the world where we see this? Well, I would think Ontario likely will be will be watching this, and um, and would likely very likely be dashed because the problem is 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 quite severe here as well and uh, possibly P- quebec but we see like portugal is always ha- held up as an example of, of a country that has adopted a lot of harm reduction related uh, and supported policies including decriminalization that's where we've seen a lot of the um the more um, benefits that that have resulted because of those those policies is there a downside to this avenue um i I suppose there could be in terms of if it um, increases sort of uh, if, if there's like uh, more like opposition or if there's conflicts between 
um, the police or and people you know who are using. But I don't see that happening because it this should really diminish some of that um, that those harms that are related to that that are related to to criminalization. So you know what what we see what we hear about when um, these practices are in places that should reduce that. I'm playing a devil's advocate here, Tim. Uh, what would you say to those that say this would promote usage? Um, well, similar to, um, um, you know, uh, it, it's 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 happening anyway. So, so uh, yeah. that this is not going to change. It's not going to stop people from using. Um, it's just going to what it is going to do is um, allow more access to other, you know, forms of of treatment and healthcare to really address the issues that, that needs to be addressed so that people don't continue using, as has been said, like using alone. Um, is this, is this the, the problem that go away? Like, like alcohol doesn't go away. We regulate right. alcohol. We, um, you know, we provide it to people. Um, and you know, you go from there in terms of usage. Tim McClement with us, Executive Director of the AIDS Network. Federal government announcing that B.C. will be the first province in Canada to decriminalize possession of small amounts of illicit drugs for personal use in order to get rid of the stigma and hopefully get people into treatment. Tim, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. You're welcome. Thank you. Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer. He'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Do you find that Mr. Depp has proven by clear and convincing evidence that Ms. Hurd acted with actual malice? Answer, yes. As against Amber Heard, we the jury award compensatory damages in the amount of $10 million. As against Amber Heard, we the jury award punitive damages in the amount of $5 million. That is the judge reading out the verdict in the Amber Heard and Johnny Depp case. Uh, I must admit, I, I've only seen little clips of this. I haven't been watching it. I, I just, I, it's, to me, it's like watching a train wreck. And you can probably go into any divorce court and see something uh, very similar, except perhaps not with such high numbers uh, and, uh, and, and famous people, that's for sure. But uh, as you heard the judge say, the jury has ruled in favor of Johnny Depp, although uh, Amber Heard has got $2 million in damages as well to talk more about all of this ari goldkind with us defense lawyer he is with us now ari thanks for the time i know you're busy uh, appreciate you being here thank you always great to be on with you scott so should we be surprised by this verdict ari i've seen you on various media talking about this and uh you seem to nail this one well i appreciate that and i think i want to touch on this the song that you played in the intro which is losing my religion by the band called rem which, because so much of our anti-social media world is run by people who think REM only means sleep, the verdict really <laughs> ties into, I think, uh, an important part of this. So I think I predicted this. I called it. I used my experience as a lawyer of 20 years to assess just how terribly Amber Heard testified. It's a bit of a weird verdict, given that Johnny Depp ran the table at 100%, but then they sort of threw Miss Heard a little bit of a conciliatory $2 million because Johnny Depp's lawyer, as he then was, a gentleman named Mr. Waldman, called what she did as a hoax. I find that there's really a uh, logical inconsistency there where if you believe that Amber Heard defamed Johnny Depp, 
why would you have any issue with Johnny Depp's lawyers saying that she's created a hoax? I think there's a weird mm. element to that. And I think it ties into me making reference to losing my religion, which takes me to me too. You see Monica mm. Lewinsky calling the trial courtroom porn, which I think is a perfectly appropriate term. And you used a much more mm. PG term, which was a train wreck. Yeah. We all know that when you're sitting in traffic on the QEW or the 403, and you're looking ahead of you, and everybody is rubbernecking at the accident, and you're stuck in traffic, you think to yourself, why does every idiot have to turn to the left and see the car pulled over by the side of the road or the accident? But then you get up to that, and guess what you do as soon as you get up to the accident? <laughs> and the reason I say losing my religion, which I really, you know, I mean, I, I, I think certain things in life uh, connect to other things, is that this is a really important Me Too case. Not because of Amber Heard's tone-deaf, ridiculous statement that she just put out. If you see what she put out, it's so infantile and insulting, it makes me think the jury got it right, even if you think the jury got it wrong. But what it suggests is that we need to cool our jets, and I think the pendulum is moving, that we don't just accept what people say because they tick a certain gender box or a certain racial box, and their agenda and their allegations can't be tested. This is a woman who live on candid camera, on tape, on video recordings, on audio recordings, is bragging about beating Johnny Depp, punching him, assaulting him, abusing him. Now, when that was presented to her, her evidence was extraordinarily eye-rolling in court. So why do I make the point that it's time that we lose our religion, which is letting anti-social media run by 21-year-olds cater to the world, versus, look... Let's test allegations. Just because Amber said something doesn't mean Johnny did it, or vice versa. Because if you would have had Johnny Depp accusing Amber Heard of this, people would have said, that doesn't make sense. That, 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 that mm. sounds weird to me. And so what I like about this jury verdict, Scott, is I think we have to get back to resetting the dining room table, not accepting that everybody uses victimhood as a shield, versus as a sword and i think the jury sent the message loud and clear as i've predicted throughout the beginning of this trial that even though there's two hollywood actors performing i think both of them are probably acting and performing and giving performances whoever trained her to speak to a jury i think should probably never occupy that role again hmm so uh, with that split decision and him getting $15 million, her getting two for the, the hoax claim or the hoax, uh, uh, what the lawyer said, um, is that about, was that more about public perception and the balance of all of this? I think so. I think, and look, these awards are going to be cut down. I don't think anybody's mm-hmm. writing anybody a check. Amber Heard lied about donating $7 million to the ACLU and other groups. That was a total lie that she got caught on. Many of your listeners may remember that viral video where she said, well, a donation really isn't a donation. It just means a pledge. What the numbers are, and and again, the part of the trial that went viral was more about the young lawyer for Johnny Depp cross-examining Amber Heard. But there was a big part of the trial, Scott, which was quantifying the damages to their careers, respectively. Now, Johnny Depp sued for $50 million. They gave him 10 in compensatory, not 50. That's the jury's way, I think, of saying, look, Johnny Depp is no angel. He has a very serious drug and alcohol problem. 
his reputation on Hollywood sets was hurting even before Amber Heard defamed him, arguably. So this, to me, was a very, very sensible verdict, but for the Amber Heard victory against the lawyer, because, again, if the lawyer is retained by Johnny Depp and the client's position is that this is false or a hoax, you know, that $2 million is weird to me, but I think that's probably a bit of a reach out to the Me Too movement so that Amber Heard would be able to not leave a court totally empty. But this is a very interesting day in defamation, Scott, not just for Don, Johnny Depp, but because most people don't know how hard it is in the U.S. where you have greater free speech protections than almost anywhere else, and you have to have what's called actual malice. I use that term specifically. Actual malice before you can on a, succeed on a defamation claim. And for people who say, well, what is actual malice? It's a reckless disregard for the truth or intentionally lying when you know that you are lying. It's sort of like the Seinfeld line. It's not a lie if you believe it to be true. Here it's a lie when you know it's a lie. So that's a very strong jury verdict up and down the line that was yes to every question. But I think the fallout of this will be much more important, which is maybe people taking a chill pill before you accept what somebody says because they tick the right demographic checkbox. Interesting observation. Ari Goldkind with his uh, defense lawyer talking about the uh, Johnny Depp Amber Heard trial, uh, the jury uh, f- uh, ruling in favor of Johnny Depp for $15 million and Amber Heard getting two uh, for damages as well. Ari, always fascinating. Thanks so much for the time. Be well. Great to be with you, Scott. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. As we enter into the last day, uh, or it is the last day of, uh, I guess we're hardly entering into it, unless you're just getting up now. You're entering into the last day of the election campaign. Uh, many have said it's a bit, been a bit of a sleeper uh, at that point, but uh, or at this point. But, um, you know, I think coming out of a global pandemic, uh, I don't think people are really excited about anything at this point, other than perhaps the sunshine and getting outside. Uh, let's bring in Daniel Perry, consultant, Summa Strategies, to get uh, their take. And Daniel is with us now. Daniel, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Hey, Scott, I hope you're doing well also. Thanks so much. Your thoughts on this campaign as we move towards Election Day tomorrow? Well, I think calling it Ontario is a good way to kind of sum it up. Uh, it's been pretty sleepy, really been pretty boring, and been pr- fairly predictable. If you're a conservative, you're probably quite happy with the results. If you're a liberal, or even if you're Stephen Del Duca, not so much. And it's up for grabs how Andrew Horvath feels about this one. If this is dull, isn't that the opposition's job to make it not dull because it seems everybody's in an agreement here. Uh, why is it dull? I think it's just the leadership. We've saw this before, even in the last federal election, the election before that, the, the leaders seem quite, yeah, the leaders seem quite boring and no one's really getting any energy. We saw a lot of energy in 2015 under when Justin Trudeau ran federally. And I think a lot of people were hoping to recreate that energy uh, in the upcoming elections, but everyone's kind of fell in short, and I think people are just tuned out. What about how you talked about the 2015 and, and election of Justin Trudeau and such, and how the buzz was very much different? Are uh, have the opposition parties are they guilty of running an election campaign that is pre-pandemic? And you know, by this, uh, and by that, I mean, you know, if you look at the top issues that are concerning whether it's Ontarians or Canadians right across the country, it's very much different from what it was, say, back in 2015. It's all pretty much economic issues, the cost of living 
living, the cost of food, the cost of housing, the cost of energy, inflation, uh, interest rates and such. Whereas those are issues that aren't necessarily um, strong issues for left-leaning parties. Is that why we're in the position that we are? Uh, the normal slate of top five issues is completely different than it was pre-pandemic. Mm-hmm. And I think you're right to say that, that traditionally economic issues tend to favor right-leaning parties, specifically the conservatives. But that said, again, if we look to federal politics, we see the liberals winning. If we look out to our friends in B.C., we see the NDP and the left winning. So I think that might be just a bit of a general ca- casting of the die in that sense, that is it going to be about election? This election is only about economical issues. I think there are other issues that people are concerned about. And I think that's why we're seeing the Green Party surging a little bit, because I think the environment is an issue that people care about. And it hasn't been talked to a great extent as it has in the past. But I still think there's other little wedge issues that make plays in campaigns. They just haven't been as loud as they have been in previous campaigns. And why is that? I think they're just. It, it, I think as we're exiting out of COVID, I think people are just genuinely tired of hearing from politicians. Uh, we listen to them every day. It seems like. Uh, but on the other hand, Daniel, let me interrupt here. On the other hand, they're not tired of talking about the cost of living. They're not tired about talking about the high cost of housing, food, energy, or inflation. They're talking about it quite a bit. And these are issues just like COVID that are hitting every single Canadian. So I think everybody is fatigued here in general, but I think they want to move forward, not backwards. And I think, you know, I've heard one reporter say that there just doesn't seem, this this campaign has been more about managing the campaign than it has about the issues. And I don't think that's accurate at all. I think what's happened here is the issues are different, but they are just as important to Canadians as the other issues are. It's just these affect everybody, and they're more economic-related. No? Mm-hmm. I think that's hard to say. Uh, there was a poll that came out uh, from Lache a couple weeks ago when it looked at uh, how Ontarians were seeing the different uh, political parties, and the Liberals are actually leading at like 58% in terms of having a platform with the best ideas, but yet they're still struggling. So I just don't think there's a receptive audience right now. But they seem to be receptive for the incumbent. Yeah, and there's always the incumbent advantage as well. And to be fair, I, I think if you ask the average person in Ontario, some might even grudgingly admit that Doug Ford has done a decent job of managing us through the pandemic. So I think he's getting some good grace in that sense. And what about uh, Stephen Del Duca? Still too much connection to the previous win government? It just doesn't seem to be resonating. Andrea Horvath, obviously her fourth kick at the can here. Uh, that could just be a, a best before date thing. W- what do you think of the, the the fight for second, as they say? Yeah, it's it's a pretty sad fight for second. Uh, depending what happens in Stephen Del Duca's own writing, he might not even have a seat, so he might have to have an awkward conversation with a recently elected MP in a safe MPP in a safe riding to ask for their seat, so they would set aside so he could run for a seat. Um, when it comes to Horvath, this is her fourth kick of the can, and she was asked yesterday by reporters if she would be a civil leader of the NDP at 9:01 tomorrow, and she danced around the question pretty good. So I think if you're an opposition leader right now, your job security is very much in jeopardy, and you're kind of looking just down to hold down the fort. So are you expecting any surprises tomorrow in any way? I mean, you never know. Things can always change from what the polls say, but are you expecting any surprises? <laughs> no, it's very true. Polls are uh, yesterday's news. Um, I, the only surprise I think we would see is in Perry, San Muskoka, where the Green Party is putting on quite a good fight against 
uh, traditionally a conservative riding. But I think broadly speaking, I don't think we'll be much of a surprise. I think we could probably go to bed all around 9.30, 10 o'clock, knowing what tomorrow will look like for an Ontario government. Uh, do you think that uh, the feds can learn, the federal conservatives can learn anything from the provincial conservatives in Ontario? Conservatives learning from each other. Hey, Scott, that, that's very really funny. They just like to fight with each other usually. Um, I, I think what they're going to, after this, I think each leadership candidate is going to have to kind of take a step back um, and kind of reflect on the Ontario election to see that you can be a populist, but you can also be someone that is progressive on some issues, especially around labor and still win. So I, I think there's going to be some jockeying among the conservative leadership candidates to position themselves as, hey, I can win the GTA as well, and this is my plan for it. What do you think of the support that the Ford government has for from unions and such? To me, this guy seems to be the most centrist conservative <laughs> since the days of Bill Davis. Yeah, it, it's fascinating to watch from Roland, if I'm being honest with you. And I think that says a lot more about where traditional union parties are, such as the NDP and the Liberals, where they have kind of moved in terms of going farther to the left, where the Conservatives kind of filled that gap in the centre. So I don't think it says much about unions. I think it says more about the current political spectrum and where political parties are positioning themselves. Fascinating. Daniel Perry with us, consultant, Summa Strategies. Of course, the election tomorrow. Make sure you grab your card and get out and cast your ballot. Daniel, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thanks, Scott. Take care. All right, tomorrow, voting day in Ontario. It's your time to get out and exercise your right. Please do. We encourage you to do so. Uh, grab your voter card and uh, maybe get some other people that uh, that perhaps don't have a quick way to get there, whatever. Help others to do the same and get to the polls and cast your ballot. Don't forget, uh, coming up uh, after the show tomorrow night, uh, our ongoing coverage, uh, continuing coverage of the election campaign and the results uh, as they come in. All right, it is the last day of the the campaign june 2nd tomorrow is election day let's bring in peter gray professor of political science mcmaster university get his take on this campaign and he is with us now peter thank you for the time i hope you're well i am hope you are too yes thanks so much peter uh, your thoughts on this campaign many have called it uh, a bit of a sleeper yeah i mean it will be interesting to see the voter turnout uh, tomorrow i mean ontario elections often have pretty low voter turnout but uh, you know, one doesn't really get the sense uh, of people really turning into this election. I mean, even just walking through, uh, you know, several of the ridings here in, in Hamilton, you know, very few uh, signs as compared to past elections. You know, there's ways in which and uh, people saying that they haven't really heard from any of the candidates at their doorstep or they've just received, you know, their first flyers the other day. So I think there's many ways in which, uh, you know, citizens haven't really tuned into this uh, this election campaign. That being said, Peter, they are extremely tuned in to the top five or six issues of the day, and that is, uh, most of them are economic issues, the cost of living, the cost of housing, the cost of food, cost of energy, inflation, interest rates, and such. Um, is this a sleeper campaign, or is this a campaign that doesn't necessarily favor uh, the left-leaning opposition, because these appear to be more economic issues, which isn't necessarily a priority for them? Uh, I'm not sure it's not a priority. I mean, I think the way in which uh, some of those things have been framed, uh, you know, came out this way. I mean, something like, uh, you know, the Liberals talking about uh, Bucca Ride Transit uh, or the NDP around dental care have been around kind of questions of affordability. Um, I mean, I think the economic question that's been moving it for the Liberals is, uh, sorry, for the Conservatives is mostly, uh, 
you know, is the economy going better? Uh, and, you know, who do you trust uh, in terms of, you know, seeing continued economic growth and a return to employment? And, you know, historically, that's been a conservative issue in terms of, uh, you know, their credibility on that. And I think, you know, they've benefited uh, with that, with their, their core constituency. But, yeah, I mean, a lot of the cost of living issues, I, I think citizens are looking at their parties, but I'm not sure if we actually look at what the parties have been saying, that there's a lot there that will convince voters that that parties can really make a difference uh, on those things. I mean, they have had different things to say about housing. I'm not sure that many people feel that's going to show up in terms of the rent they're paying or their ability to to afford a place. Uh, you know, a question about rising prices at the grocery store. I don't think most of us think our politicians have a lot of power over that in the short term. So uh, those are pressing issues. I'm not sure if citizens have really seen that in the party platforms. To the extent the economy matters in this, it matters in the way I think it traditionally does, that when things are going well economically, uh, the government in place uh, reaps a benefit. Are, have our priorities changed uh, quite a bit compared to elections that were fought prior to the global pandemic? You know, if you take the, for example, the federal election of maybe it's, it's not fair to compare apples to oranges with provincial and, and federal, but, you know, even keep it provincially. Uh, issues, social issues seem to be more prevalent prior to the pandemic. Social issues still huge. I mean, healthcare is obviously a big issue. But as you mentioned, uh, as we mentioned, cost of living has certainly, um, it's something that affects every single person, much like the global uh, pandemic did in that respect have you uh, is it something that the other parties have been able to run on I'll take housing for example which you know we've been talking about housing in past elections but usually it's all about affordable housing um, and now all of a sudden we have not only the NDP the liberals and the PCs saying they're going to build homes we've also seen the Green Party jump on this leaving a lot of people to ask and again I think this is just the pendulum swinging back a lot of people asking why are we all why are all four political parties now talking about this where was this discussion 5 10 15 20 years ago yeah i mean i think part of it had to do uh, there's been pretty uh, significant uptick uh, and rise in the price of housing and in rents uh, you know in the past 4 or 5 years uh, which i think explains some of the the kind of uh, recent attention to that uh, but I think also, uh, you know, solutions, if we go back a while, would have cost money. And so, you know, if we're saying, you know, is, is cost of living a kind of a fresh issue this time? I don't think so. If I go back like two elections, all the parties were kind of promising how they would like cut our insurance prices or you know, mm. cut the price uh, at the gas pump or deliver, you know, these really, you know, small changes in the cost of living to us. And it was it was kind of like... Uh, uh, you know, brands trying to sell us their products. And, uh, you know, what's changed this time, I think, is that the budgetary constraint seems to be much looser and all the parties, you know, feel that they can promise us new spending, whether it's on highways or like a new dental care program. I and mean, there's different offers from different parties, uh, you know, at the same time as making these savings. But go back 10 years, the idea of, you know, investing a chunk of money into, say, uh, building more housing and increasing housing supply was, you know, seemed to be fiscally irresponsible. There was no way that you could balance a budget and deliver that kind of housing. And so, yeah, the, these things that are, are big and complex issues and, you know, multi-year issues were, were kind of shuffled to the side for an extended period.
At the end of the day, and I know there's lots of factors in here, but let's be honest, the biggest factor with the housing issue is high demand and low supply. So, um, again, I remember in past elections, people just, they wanted higher density. They wanted, you know, uh, no more, uh, no more expansion. Everything has to be up. And then in the last five, 10, 15, 20 years, we've seen it happen a little bit, but we've also seen a tremendous amount of nimbyism. So where do you move forward with this issue on housing now that all parties agree that it's a major issue that needs to be dealt with? Yeah, I mean, I think it, it, you've got to work on many different fronts on, on housing because there's a lot of different housing situations. I mean, I might, I might challenge this idea that, you know, I mean, if we look at where housing's been built in the GTA, it's been, it's been new suburbs. And we went through about a quarter century of not building, for instance, uh, private rental housing uh, at any kind of rate. And I mean, that has a particular effect on the situation of renters. You know, it's a different situation of people who are getting into to the buying the housing market. And so I think one of the challenges in, in these in these election campaigns is that we talk about housing as an issue, but people are very differently situated in terms of what that challenge is, whether it's a matter of getting into the housing market, uh, you know, or whether it's a matter of just being able to afford a place to rent are very different kinds of situations and probably call forth uh, different solutions. And so we have this as, a, as an election issue and, and all parties have something to put in the window I think most uh, voters don't really have uh, much of a way of kind of pulling those apart uh, and kind of figuring out which of those offers is actually going to make a difference uh, for their particular situation. What about, uh, we've only got about 30 seconds left. What about the uh, opposition parties? Uh, what do you think the future of Andrew Horvath and Stephen Del Duca are, is? Well, I guess we have to see what comes out tomorrow night. <laughs> I think, you know, it's going to be pretty results dependent. Um but, you know, it's not impossible to think, uh, you know, neither of them was able to consolidate the vote. The end, you know, there's a 60% of the population that wants a change of government, but neither of those parties have been able to consolidate it. And I think if they don't do that tomorrow, their, their jobs are probably uh, going to be removed from them. Peter Gray, Professor of Political Science, McMaster University. Always fascinating, Peter. Thanks so much for the time. Be well. And you too. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Let's bring in Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. Current column, a school shooting threat at Ancaster's Bishop Thomas highlights the ever more difficult job of being a parent. And he's coming on right after the 6 o'clock news. He's with us now. Scott, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Doing great, Scott. How are you doing? I'm doing very well, and I, I, uh, you talked about this last night when we were uh, doing this, uh, this piece, and you mentioned that this uh, column was going to appear today, uh, and obviously today we're hearing about a situation uh, very similar happening to Westdale High School, right across the road from the radio station. Um, we were talking about a, a situation in Oakville yesterday, and my kid actually sent me a video of that uh, one of his friends took inside the classroom, which actually shows the person coming into the classroom carrying, which we eventually found out was a replica handgun. And man, I was almost cracking up on the air talking about this. It was so difficult to see, even though everybody survived. So uh, you bring up a very valid point with your column here today, and and that is um, even though it, oh, it's just a social media hoax, it's this, that, or the other, you don't know. No, and look, I, I still think, and, and you know, there's the one at Westdale now, and there's, this, I, I think there's another yep. one or two at other Hamblin schools. I think got a, all of a sudden there's this raft of these yeah. things. It's a social and media I thing. And I still think that, you know, probably 
this is teenagers using their teenager brains that are not developed yeah. and thinking, you know, this is hilarious or, you know, this will whatever. Uh, probably, I mean, the chances are, the odds are, this is probably not really a real lashing out by someone. But, but how in the world do we possibly know? And as I say in the column, and, and like this is, this is where this gets so tricky. Back when you and I were in high school, if someone had written something like this on a bathroom stall, you would have got called to the principal's office and reamed out for a little bit and got a detention for being stupid. Because yeah. nobody back in then, back in the 80s, would have thought that this kind of thing would ever really happen. It wasn't a thing. But today it is. In 2022, it is. And so if you're a parent, how do you know whether you should be really taking this seriously and telling your kid to stay home for a few days just in case? Because how do you live with yourself if you didn't take it seriously and something happened? On the other hand, you know, if it's just some idiot kid or kids, copycats having a lark and thinking it's hilarious and, you know, then, I mean, do you really want to send your message to kids that every time something scary happens, you have to stay in your house and never venture out? It's, look, there's a whole discussion about guns. There's a whole discussion about mental health. There's a whole discussion about violence in our society. There's a whole discussion about all those things. But I just wrote about the parents, and I don't know if you're a parent today. I, I Honestly, I don't know some of these decisions, how you make them properly. You know, and, and, and we also assume that because kids are kids and kids are resilient, that, that this doesn't affect them. And it's all social media. It's all part of the prank. That's the life they live now. That's the way they are. And I think that's crap. And, you know, watching, you know, m my daughter had a situation where a friend of hers who she's supposed to live with next year at university uh, was killed over the, the mm. last few weeks. And then, you know, my, my son gets, you know, in high school and you, you see what happens, what's happening in the high schools in the area with these, with these jokes, pranks, threats, whatever they are. And, you know, I can tell it's affecting them because of the questions that they're asking me. And although they may put on a real brave front and, ah, you know, you know, you know, they're scared. You know, right. they're concerned. And they're not, they won't tell you, well, maybe some will, but most yeah. of them, you're right, that you have to, to maintain your social status. You can't show that you're scared about this. You got to be yeah. cool about it. I mean, that's been, you know, <laughs> that, that, that goes back to, you know, Arthur Fonzarelli, to, sorry for a bad yeah. example, but I mean, we've <laughs> always had to be cool to show that nothing bugs us. And yet, of course it does. Of course it does. But you can't, you know, you're not going to tell your friend that. I mean, that would ruin your, your standing. And you probably won't talk to mom or dad. You might, but you probably won't because you don't want to look like you're, you know, like you're a mm -hmm. kid. You want to be a grown-up. And so, no, look, these, these things, I, here's the thing. Even if that we are right, and I really hope we are, and I suspect we are, but I really hope we are, even if this turns out again that these are written by a bunch of kids just being idiots. Yeah. And even if it turns out that they don't have a cache of guns in their bedroom and they're not going to pull a Columbine, which again, heaven forbid, I hope that the penalty for this is enormous. Not because mm -hmm. I want some idiot kid who's got an underdeveloped brain to suffer for the rest of his or her life, but because somehow the message, you have to have an example so that other people down the road are going to go, yeah, you know what? I think that might be hilarious, but you, it's just not worth it. Uh, if, if, they, if they find out who did this 
and the kid gets a little slap on the wrist or nothing happens, it, to me it would be the entirely wrong way. And I, again, I tell you, you know, it's just a kid. It was a bad decision. Yeah, but look at the impact it's having. You've now got police investigating. You've got parents who are on edge about sending their kids. As you described, you've got kids on edge. It's not funny. It, it's not funny. And, you know, to play it like it's nothing, it's not nothing. Well said. Scott Radley with us, host of the Scott Radley Show and columnist with your Hamilton Spectator, his latest in there now, uh, talking about what we just uh, have talked about and the show coming up after the 6 o'clock news. As always, Scott, thanks for the time. Have a great show. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. Thanks to the two Wills and Diana and Dave in the newsroom for today's show. Much appreciated as always. And as always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. Danny says, with regard to the election, what a waste of taxpayers' money. Also, for some party leaders... What a waste of skin. Oh, my. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. <laughs> and Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. (laughs) For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.